0: This is Healthcare Strategies. Welcome to Healthcare Strategies. I'm Sarah Heath, the Managing Editor for Intelligent Healthcare Media and the lead author on Patient Engagement HIT. We're here today to talk about women in medicine and how the gap in opportunity has created an untenable environment that's manifesting itself partially in the mass resignation from the healthcare field. That problem's only exacerbated by the fact that women, in particular, are leaving the field in droves. This isn't because women don't wanna work, it's because the healthcare industry sees an alarming opportunity disparity for women versus their male counterparts. Women are paid less, promoted less, and published less, and when the pandemic hit, it pushed women to reconsider their career choices. Dr. Sheikha Jane, a practicing hematologist who works at UIC Cancer Center, wanted to change that when she founded Women in Medicine. The group aims to close the gender gap in medicine by promoting speaker opportunities for women and even offering allyship training for men in the field. Joining us today to chat about gender equity in healthcare are Dr. Jane and her colleague, Dr. Eve Bloomgarden, an endocrinologist and the Chief Development Officer for Women in Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Jane and Dr. Bloomgarden. Thanks for having us. Thanks for the invite. Of course. So why don't we rewind a little bit to what medicine looked like even before the pandemic? Gender equity in healthcare, what was the situation prior to March 2020?
1: So prior to March 2020, we were making strides, I like to say, in towards closing the gender gap in healthcare. But there were huge disparities that existed. So some ones that have been very popular in the news, there is a very large pay gap between women and men in medicine and healthcare who were working the same amount of hours, generating the same number of RVUs, and were simply just being compensated differently. There was a lot of data out there showing that the work that women do, especially the citizenship tax and the diversity, equity, and inclusion tasks or the tasks that societies and organizations and institutions need to survive and thrive was often done by women. And that work was not being compensated or valued. There wasn't really a return on investment, whether it was professional or financial. Then aside from pay, we know that there's a lot of implicit and explicit bias that feeds into the fact that oftentimes women are not nominated for awards or selected for opportunities as often, not because women aren't qualified or ambitious, but because they are just not being chosen for a variety of reasons, which we can delve into. Same thing when it comes to being asked to give keynote addresses. There have been studies coming out showing women aren't asked to do TV interviews as experts as often as men. Uh, funding, grant funding is often um, a disparity between men and women. So Basically, in every aspect of careers, transitioning into leadership positions, being promoted, there were very large disparities that existed in the healthcare space for men and women. And I also want to emphasize, we talk about much of this in the binary, talking about men and women, because that's where the data comes from. That's where the research has been done. That is not, as we know, how we should be discussing gender as a whole, but because that's how the studies have been done, that's how we talk about it. So that has been a real challenge, seeing these very large disparities that existed pre-pandemic, and I've only touched on a handful of examples, that have now widened throughout the pandemic for a variety of reasons, and ultimately is resulting in many very accomplished, ambitious women leaving healthcare altogether. And so we're seeing a widening of this gap, whether it's financial or in leadership or in opportunities, that has gotten worse over the last several years. And the really sad thing is it felt like we were starting to make some progress pre-pandemic, and now it feels like we've taken multiple giant steps backwards. And so gender equity should be at the forefront of what we're talking about when it comes to innovation and healthcare. Um, And there's more and more studies coming out that women physicians actually provide not only equivalent, but sometimes exceptional care as compared to the male colleagues. Now this isn't a us versus them situation, it's just looking at the data. And there have been studies showing women surgeons who operate on women patients have lower complications and women have less patients who get readmitted to the hospital. So this issue should be really important for everybody, not only because the people who it impacts in the workforce, but also because it trickles down and then impacts our patients. And it at the end of the day impacts our healthcare organizations because we also know that organizations that have the most diversity from the top down tend to get more awards and retain people more and actually make more money. So when you look at this as a whole, gender equity should be the first, last, and middle conversation for every aspect of healthcare if we want to improve our healthcare system.
2: Well, that was very well said. I completely agree with all of that. And I think it really just drives the point home when we're at the end of year two of this global pandemic and the stressors that have been placed on the healthcare system are really just palpable to everyone whether you're a patient a consumer or a provider of health services and the fact that we've taken a backwards you know jump is just there's so many things that are going to spiral from that that are already spiraling from that that are preventable but require intentional you know effort and that's what we do I mean that's The purpose of our organization is to close the gender gap in medicine and healthcare, but we do that in a variety of different ways that bring, I think, all players to the table and really make it a team effort because it's not just about wanting to say that hey we're here and we want to be acknowledged for that but it's it's really the best thing for everyone and we're concerned about the state of affairs at the moment there's a lot we can do but there's a lot of work to do
0: yeah you bring up a really good point about the pandemic and how so much changed and affected everyone and i know stories within medicine and without medicine about some gender inequities in the workforce how so many women because they had to absorb so much of the homestead when everyone started working at home that they were really pushed out of their careers. Can you talk to me about how the pandemic sort of changed or increased these gender inequities in medicine and some of these factors that contribute to female medical professionals Exiting the industry? Well,
1: just as you mentioned, this is not specific to just healthcare. This happened across the space, across all of the workforce. When kids started having to be doing virtual learning at home, when people lost their childcare, when people were working from home. I mean, I can't even tell you how many times my kids have sat in my lap while I was giving a national lecture or have busted in while I was doing an interview. So it's not just in healthcare that the problem has existed. But I think one of the things that's where you unique to healthcare, is we can't stay home if we are in the hospital. So that added an even deeper level of challenge when trying to take care of people during this pandemic who needed healthcare workers more than ever. We did not have the support to have childcare or elder care. Many women, if they don't have children, or even if they do have children, we're part of a sandwich generation, taking care of aging parents and also taking care of children. So All of those extra burdens that got put on, oftentimes on women, I do want to say, I know many men who also stepped up, but traditionally and stereotypically, most of that work, the domestic responsibility falls on the woman if you're in a heterosexual partnership, if you're in a male-female partnership. And so we saw many women who either had to leave their jobs altogether because they couldn't find someone to take care of their kids or their aging family members, or who just said, this is too much. I mean, I am being asked to do even more at work and step up and do more things at the hospital I'm potentially putting my life and my kid's life at risk when we didn't know that much about COVID-19. We saw physicians and nurses and people trying to quarantine from their families, but then not having the support in place to help take care of their families. So all of that has really exacerbated a problem that existed pre-pandemic. And then on top of that, as I mentioned earlier, there's so much data showing that women took on so much of that invisible work, and that's in healthcare and in the workforce outside of healthcare. McKinsey and leanin.org put out a survey showing that of the women they surveyed, the majority of women were doing the necessary work, the DE&I work, the mental health work, and they weren't getting recognized for it. And I think it was Over a quarter of the women said that they'd never been acknowledged or recognized for all the extra work they've done. We published a paper pre-pandemic talking about the third shift, where healthcare workers, especially women, work a first shift, which is their job, second shift, which is when you get home and take care of your family and domestic responsibilities, and then the third shift is all the extra work we do, the equity work, the helping out with citizenship tasks Then Dr. Julie Silver published a paper on the fourth shift, which happened during COVID, where women were often creating vaccine events or providing support to their trainees or mobilizing COVID units within their hospitals. And again, these are things that are often not compensated financially. They don't help in your professional growth or development. While our male colleagues were still doing what is the currency, especially in academia, they were publishing papers, they were putting out grants, they were taking the time at home when they were quote unquote working from home, and they were able to be much more productive because they had somebody else taking care of the domestic responsibilities so what we're seeing is women are falling even more behind, again, not because they weren't working just as hard, if not harder than their male colleagues. In many cases, they were working more hours, working later into the night, getting less sleep, doing more work that was necessary for the healthcare systems to survive the pandemic and keep patients safe. But that work is not the work that's valued in our healthcare systems. It's not the work that's compensated financially. It's not the work that helps you move towards promotion. Um, It's not the work that gets you leadership opportunities. And so unfortunately, while women continue to be relegated to doing the necessary work, that work is not helping us close the gender gap because it's not actually helping these women in their careers.
2: Yeah. So we wind up having what really is a perfect storm of pressures and stressors that we're all present ahead of time, but have just been really exacerbated over the last two years. So we have you know, unequal pay, the perception of the work that we've put in not being valued, the continual stress of having to worry about our own personal health and also the health of either our children or our other loved ones or people that we have caregiving responsibilities for. And then on top of that, the workforce shortages that have ensued have kind of made it even harder to continue moving forward at the same pace that we started at. And it all kind of perfectly aligns to push on the buttons that we're already bringing loud and clear. And so the challenge now is where do we go? And I think part of what we do as people who are very invested in, you know, reaching gender equity and is not just kind of raising awareness in a vacuum because awareness I think is there already, but it's really offering solutions to some of these problems so that we can really advance the field and the cause. And ultimately, you know, it would be nice to not have to talk about gender equity, right? I mean, because it would just be a given.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I feel like that's a nice segue into my next question about just a little bit more information about your organization, Women in Medicine. What were some of your goals for the organization? when it first started and what kind of initiatives do you guys have for promoting gender equity in the medical field?
1: Sure, so when the organization actually started, it started off with a crazy idea that I had. So I came up with the idea of creating a Women in Medicine Summit. And the purpose of this summit was to bring women together from across the country and really empower them to take control of their own lives. And not only that, because we know fixing women isn't the solution. We need to fix the system. So we really wanted to provide these women and men who attended tools that they could take back to their organizations and institutions with ways to fix the system. And so we did that by empowering them in their own leadership skills and tool sets and figuring out how to negotiate or figuring out how to identify implicit biases and address them, but then also coming up with solutions in how you can actually create real intentional strategic solutions to fix the system within which you're working and hopefully have a national impact. So, we started with the summit. And then, when the pandemic happened, I had a lot of people reaching out saying, Oh my gosh, the summit is great. You need to do more. And I said, Awesome. I totally have time to do more. Let me see what I can do. And so, what I did was, you know, we now have the summit, which is a freestanding conference. And we have an entire nonprofit built off these ideas and ideals of taking a multi pronged approach to closing the gender gap in healthcare. We focus on not only educating individuals, but also empowering them. And we do this in a variety of ways. So first we have education and leadership training. We have longitudinal leadership programming for early career and mid-career women. That's continuing medical education, CME. So hospitals should be able to pay for it because we're supposed to do a certain number of CME credits a year. And it's leadership programming to help these women get into leadership positions and then accelerate their path when they get there and be successful. The second thing we did, which I think we're one of the, probably the first organization in the healthcare space to do this, is we created allyship programming. So allyship programming is bringing in our male leaders and our male healthcare workers and our colleagues to teach them how to be more inclusive leaders. And I say this because many men want to do this. They want to do this work. They want to help, but they don't know how. And so I had so many men saying, we need Skills, we need tools. Tell us how to do this. So, we've created longitudinal leadership programming again, that's CME for our male colleagues who can attend leadership programming and learn how to work towards closing the gender gap from their positions of power because none of this is going to happen without men and women working together. The third thing we focus on you know, we talk a lot about fixing the system, but we also need to provide opportunities. So, the opportunities need to be across the board for men and women who are equally qualified. So we launched the first of its kind Women in Medicine Speakers Bureau to allow women the opportunity to showcase their talents and pitch themselves for opportunities, whether it's conferences or media, because we know there are many, many qualified women out there who often aren't getting tapped on the shoulder because they may not be traveling in the circles that are getting those opportunities. We also launched a research lab. So the research lab focuses on not only talking about the problems that exist, uh, but really doing research and showcasing solutions that work because I'm not a complainer. I tell Dr. Bloomgarden this all the time. I don't want our organization to be a group of people just coming together complaining about the problems. My dad's a surgeon. And so in our house, it's all right, you bring me a problem. I wanna know the solution as well. And so that's what we do with our organization. We want to not only share the issues that exist, we want to say, these are the solutions. This is what we need to do. We also have a very large community building aspect of our organization where we have mentorship and sponsorship opportunities for the next generation of physicians and healthcare workers. We want to lift as we rise. We want to make sure we're providing the next generation with the tools to be successful. And these communities that we've built have allowed for women to network with individuals that they otherwise may not have come into contact with. And not only help them get opportunities, but also allow them to talk to other people about the challenges they've experienced. I have people contacting me all the time about microaggressions or macroaggressions or discrimination. And while I may not always know where to guide them, I have an entire organization of incredible men and women that I can direct them to, to find people to help support them and help them navigate challenging situations. For too long in healthcare, we've lived in our own silos and we've kind of moved along the way things have been for years and years and years. Now, I think is a perfect time I call it a watershed moment in the gender equity space. We're at a time where our healthcare system has shown all of its cracks because we're living through a pandemic. We now know where all of the pressure points are, and it's not just the people who it's impacting directly. Now, everybody has seen those pressure points. So if it's become a part of the national dialogue, now is the time to capitalize on this and really say, where are our pressure points? Where are our cracks? Where is the healthcare system crumbling? How do we rebuild it in a new way? How do we change it so that we emerge from this pandemic with a new system that not only focuses on equity, but focuses on having a better healthcare system that really provides the best care for everybody, whether they're in the workforce or whether they're patients. So those are just some of the initiatives that we work on. And I'm fortunate to have an amazing team of people who have um, experienced this with me and have led this with me and have been visionaries when it comes to
2: really making these changes, hopefully on a global level, eventually. The best part of of being involved in this work is you can hear the passion that we both have Mm -hmm. for this. But also everything that Dr. Jane just said is true. And I was next to her and witnessing almost all of it from the inception of the idea where I told her that was an insane idea. And why are we going to do this? But, you know, followed her through to the establishment of these pillars and programs and educational opportunities and longitudinal, innovative, creative opportunities, courses that really didn't exist before Women in Medicine, the organization really came to be and really established itself as the place to really go for this information. We provide a language and a vocabulary terms to recognize some of the feelings and experiences that so many of us were having, but just not able to really identify what the cause was. And then through working together, we're able to really have The power to guide the narrative as we're doing now, and I think the other really important piece to all of this is that the system or and the practice of medicine at its inception was really not designed for flexibility for women and for anybody with caregiving responsibilities, anyone underrepresented or of intersectionality. And so, you know, what we're dealing with now is almost the inevitable kind of conclusion of the last fifty years, meaning that the system is not working because it wasn't designed to work in the way that it needs to function at this point. And so when we have the opportunity to talk about why all of this matters, the bigger picture here is that in order for us to be able to provide healthcare and medical care to anyone who needs it, we need to be able to stay in the medical system. And what's happening is you know, the great resignation that has played out across the country for all fields and for every aspect of work has really taken a a very significant toll on the healthcare workforce, which is predominantly female if you look at the breakdown of everyone on the front lines. And so the loss to the healthcare system is profound. You know, I always say there's really nothing great about the great resignation aside from the opportunity that it provides for us to pause and say, this is so disruptive and things are not working at all to the point where change has to happen. And that's kind of where we come into it.
1: And I want to add something to what Dr. Bloomgarten just said as well. For women with intersectional identities, this is an even larger problem. I mean, we talk about the mommy tax, we talk about the minority tax, we talk about all of these different taxes that are placed on women in the workforce. For those who have intersectional identities, it's just amazing the amount of burden that's placed upon them, not only to do the work that's needed to educate everybody on these problems, but then on top of that, all of the other things with their regular job that they're already doing. So I think that one of the things we really like to focus on is while our organization is called Women in Medicine, we really want to be inclusive of everybody who is dealing with these challenges because this is something that's impacting all of us and it's impacting the health of our communities. And so now is the time to step up and say, how are we going to fix this?
2: Ultimately, it's exhausting to have to constantly remind people that you have value, right? And that is the Goal really is to make it so that nobody has to constantly do that. It should never be the case that a physician has to remind somebody that they are credentialed or that they have the same exact training that someone else does or really anybody. You know, not just for physicians, but you know, it, it, it is too much to, to bear for the people who are already marginalized and, and victimized and suffering. And if we want to be able to maintain a functional health system, we need to put some urgency under these issues.
0: I wanted to kind of expand upon what you were saying about gender diverse or gender fluid individuals. You said something really interesting at the top of the call that most of the data that we're working with works within the binary, which in itself is a problem. This is an enormous question. So it's okay if we don't have a perfect answer to it, but how do we start even chipping away from... That problem of only working in a binary so that we can be as inclusive and representative as possible?
1: It's a really good question. And as you said, it's a really hard question to tackle because a huge part of it goes along with society and how society exists and how our words that we use, the vocabulary that exists in society, how that translates into healthcare. Healthcare workers are people too, right? We all have, everybody has their religion or their personal views or their personal beliefs and, so, and, and opinions and we're supposed to be objective when we're treating patients we're supposed to you know guide by the science but especially as the world has evolved and as new conversations come up people's personal opinions often influence how they interact with others that is humanity that is the way we all exist i think the challenge is 15, 20 years ago, these types of words, you know, trans or fluidity, or not talking about gender in the binary, it didn't exist, or it existed in very small communities. Now, we are starting to see these types of conversations permeate into general society, into people who normally would not have heard about these types of vocabulary because they just weren't exposed to that. Depending on where you live in the country, you may or never meet somebody who identifies as trans or who uses pronouns. And so I think that the first step is normalizing these types of things in society. We need to put these into the vocabulary of everyone. This needs to be something that is just the way things are. Unfortunately, as we know, society and opinions change very slowly. And so it's imperative for us as healthcare workers and as People, to be perfectly honest, to normalize these types of conversations. And I think that's the first step when it comes to how does this become the way we just talk about things? Because once it becomes a part of our societal discussion, once our kids know about it, once we're teaching it in schools, once it becomes a part of our discussions, I think that is a first step in making this a part of normal conversation for people who may not otherwise be exposed to this type of dialogue. I think that's the first. Step. I think the second step and the healthcare system, you know, it's based in years and years of history and bureaucracy. And as Dr. Bloomgarten said, it was built without even women in mind. So now we're asking the healthcare system that is this. Gargantuous structure that doesn't even think about the binary. How can we start thinking about all of these other aspects that also need to be incorporated in? So it's going to require people within the system to start doing the research, to start including that type of demographic information in our research studies. It's going to require the EMRs to start including those things when you talk about describing people and not having it just be male or female selection. I mean, I'm really proud at my institution. We now have pronouns on our EMR, which I think is fantastic. That's something that wasn't there five, seven years ago um, in most EMRs. So I think first, it's changing the narrative. It's changing the dialogue and adding these words into the vocabularies of society as a whole. And then second, it's really imperative for healthcare workers, especially to be championing these things, to be bringing these to the forefront, to be including these types of things in research, in discussions, in medical conferences, because once we start normalizing the discussions of these topics, and once we start normalizing this vocabulary, eventually it's going to just become a part of our society. But it takes time for that to happen. In order for us to move things forward, we need to be intentional and strategic in
2: how we are doing that. And it just requires ongoing discussions and interventions. Again, medicine we think should be immune to some of these biases and some of these structural inequities, but it's really not. And so acknowledging that is a really important step, but ultimately having a system that can care for everyone and where you have equity and you have representation of everyone is better for patient care. When we're focusing on training, we need to be able to train the future generation of healthcare providers and healthcare leaders to appreciate the importance of diversity and to not fall victim to all of the biases and the cognitive links that we've all formed for so many years.
1: And I want to add to that. So I don't. I want to make sure people understand. We're not saying that men are not collaborative. No, absolutely. We're not saying that, not saying that men don't have these these skill sets. I think it's really interesting that we've had a lot of studies that have come out that talk about the words that are used to describe women and men, and oftentimes women and men have some very similar skill sets. But oftentimes when we describe male leaders as compared to female leaders, we often describe male leaders with more traditional leadership skills like analytical or, you know, powerful. Right. And oftentimes we talk about women as more collaborative or compassionate. That does not mean that both men and women don't have these skills. It's just how we describe our leaders. And so oftentimes men are put into a category of quote unquote better leaders because they will be described as having more of these skills that are seen as traditional leadership skill sets. When in actuality, women and men both have these skill sets. It's just how we receive them, how we see them, how we interpret how they are leading. The other point I wanna make, and I think this goes back to your original question about how do we talk about gender in non-binary terms When it comes to medicine, medicine should not be politicized. We're seeing it across the country where women's health is being politicized. Women's reproductive rights are being politicized and policies being made that are not based in science. They're based in opinions. And the scary thing is we're seeing these things implemented and they are not being implemented with medicine or the patient's best interest at heart. And so one thing we really need to work on is we need to figure out how to get politics out of medicine. Back in the olden days, post-Civil War, that's the first time that women physicians were actually able to advocate that women were not inherently sick. Because prior to that, everyone just assumed women were sickly and frail. But when women physicians started advocating, that's when we started to see people thinking, huh, maybe women aren't just sick and frail. So it's really evident as we look through the history of medicine and the evolution of female physicians, we see that women's health has actually advanced when there's women in positions of leadership. And so many of our studies pre-1990 didn't include women. So even today, in this day and age, many of our medications, many of our diagnoses, many of the ways we treat people are based on only 50% of the population. They're based on men. And so when we talk about women present with heart attacks differently than men that's because women were included in the studies and physiologically we are different so to say that women need women to be in leadership it's not because of gender it's not you know a stereotype there is pure Clear data that shows that women's health is directly related to women advancing into leadership positions. So if we want to be treating medically 50% of our population to the best of our ability, one, we need to get politics out of the exam room. We need to get politics out of the medical policy making. And two, we need to make sure we are intentional in advancing women into leadership positions because women's health depends upon it. Women's longevity in life depends on it. The way we treat women in our healthcare systems really depends on it. And to be perfectly honest, men's health depends on it. Because again, as I said, studies have shown women often have less complications. Women have less readmission rate. So this impacts everyone, whether you are a female
0: healthcare worker or not. Great. Well, this has been such a great conversation. I feel like we all could talk about this forever because it's just such an important topic. I did want to give you guys the opportunity, if there was anything that you wanted to talk about at the end that we haven't brought up yet. I just wanted to kind of open the floor for that.
2: Sure. So, I mean, one of the things that I will plug here is Mm -hmm. we have a, a summit that we put on annually. That's coming up in September in Chicago, and it's going to be in person for the first time in a couple of years, which we're really excited about. But the reason I'm bringing it up is because it is an opportunity for people to get together, to share ideas, to hear about what we're doing, to talk about some of the things that are really relevant to every player in the healthcare world right now. And we have a lot of people who are going to speak on all of the issues that we briefly touched upon here. And it's not only for physicians, it's really anyone healthcare, healthcare adjacent, who's interested in learning more and to getting involved in the solutions to what we've just presented. Everyone's invited to, to register for it. And I would encourage people to come because the feedback that we get after the summit each year is really that the summit has been a life-changing experience for so many people in the healthcare space. It would be nice to stop talking about this and to just do what we do and live our lives without having to constantly say, don't forget gender equity, you know? And I think uh, the summit is a huge way that we do that.
1: And I'll add to that, this work is so important and we're seeing a lot of our healthcare worker colleagues burn out over this, especially over this last few years, but really for a long time, we've been seeing an epidemic of burnout we are so inspired by so many women and men from across the country and really across the world who've done exceptional things to really maintain the health and safety of our societies and our communities the one thing i really just want to emphasize this work is so important whether you identify as a man whether you identify as a woman whether you are in the healthcare space it's probably some of the most important work that we could do in order to protect our healthcare system from a point of no return that we're reaching so i encourage all of you as you know dr bloomgarden said check out our women in medicine summit it really is a fantastic event. I mean, I'm not biased at all, <laughs> but it, it's really an amazing opportunity, as Dr. Bloomberg said, to not only learn, but also to connect with healthcare leaders from across the country. We're happy to connect with you if you have any questions on our leadership programming, especially our allyship programming. As I said, it's one of the only ones that exist in the healthcare space in this country, and it's modeled off of what has been extremely successful in the corporate world. So we would love to answer any questions you may have or invite you to attend one of our conferences or attend one of our leadership programs. We love what we do because we hope it's going to make a difference. And we encourage all of you to think in your own day-to-day, how can you make a difference in your system, in your personal career, in your colleagues' careers? What can you do to be intentional in sponsoring somebody or suggesting someone you may not normally think of for an opportunity?
0: Thanks to Dr. Jane and Dr. Bloomgarden for joining us today and to you, our listeners. If you liked this episode, please consider giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts to help us connect with more listeners. Thank you. This has been an intelligent Healthcare Media production.